welcome to Politics Done Right. I'm Robbie Caban, and today I'll be co-hosting with your normal host, Egberto Willis. We have a special guest. I'm very excited. Egberto? Look, uh, thank you so kindly for being here with us. Robbie, you always bring us great personalities as you've, as you've done with us in the past, and it is my honor to have you hosting Politics Done Right today. So let's get right into it. Thank you. Thank you. So we have with us uh, Kamal Franklin of Atlanta, Georgia, who is a founder of the Community Movement Builders. He is an organizer and activist. He's also a media specialist as well, and he's an attorney. And we're going to be asking him basically exactly what him and his uh, body of work is and what his organization does. They are centralized in Pittsburgh, Atlanta, which is on the south side in southwest Atlanta, where I'm a resident as well. So Kamal, thank you for joining us. And how long have you been organizing, doing the work and in Pittsburgh with Community Movement Builders? Well, one, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you sharing your platform. Uh, we've been in the Pittsburgh neighborhood as an organization since 2015, where we purchased a community house and started doing our organizing and activism work. That particular neighborhood that you're talking about, Pittsburgh, is an as a neighborhood that was founded approximately, I think, in 1883 by formerly enslaved Africans as a settlement post-slavery. Um, and since that time period up to today, it's been a vast majority Black community, a working class Black community. But like all communities in Atlanta, it is under the threat of gentrification. Um, it is under the threat of displacement for working class folks. Um, Atlanta, again, like a lot of cities across the country, is ex experiencing this tremendous growth in corporate development and new housing that's being built for middle class and upper middle class people, which is slowly pushing out working class and poor people from major cities. Thank you so much for the background on it. That was actually a lot of information really condensed, but I think it's particularly relevant and why I understand why you said so, that this is a historically Black working class neighborhood in Atlanta called Pittsburgh. So it, it's especially um, heart-wrenching to see what's occurring. As you know, I'm in real estate, so I've, I've been watching these circumstances. So I'm really grateful that there are boots on the ground like your organization, not only organizing people, but your media, Black Power Media, out there on podcasts, educating. I guess Two things. So you mentioned you purchased a community house. So a lot of people get a little caught up. They, at least that's what my interpretation is. They think, well, you purchased a house. What's what's wrong? You know, why shouldn't I purchase a house? Can you explain, elaborate a little bit? Of course, I have my own viewpoint. I don't think we should be gaining wealth off the backs of poor people. That's my problem with it. You know, I don't care if you gain wealth. In fact, I help people to gain wealth. But can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because maybe that'll help some folks cross over and leave the dark side. Well, no, I mean, I think it's important to talk about the idea and the issue of gentrification, particularly through a lens of what drives it, right? And what drives gentrification is city policy mixed with development and developers, particularly real estate developers, who begin to target particular communities for change, right? And usually those are communities that don't have a lot of power. They obviously don't have a lot of wealth. Uh, the residents are, are mostly poor or working class people. In fact, one of the misnomers is that most people think that in these neighborhoods, folks are owners of their property. But most of these folks in Pittsburgh and other places are renters. So they're impacted not only by the value of homes going up, but also the value of the tax property, the taxes on those homes going up. 
which in turn either force and or make landlords, owners of the property, raise rents, right? Or those who are working class owners now who uh, believe that they're in a position that they've created wealth, they now have to worry about larger tax bills that didn't have to worry about. And then in addition to that, usually when someone is selling a property in a working class neighborhood, and maybe they purchased a property seven, eight, 15 years ago for like 80,000, 90,000. And so now they're selling it for 200,000, 210,000. Obviously that's a great windfall for somebody. No one begrudges that. The issue also becomes that even once you sell your property, you're no longer in a position to stay in the city. So you now have to move out further, usually from your job, usually from social services, usually from public transportation, usually from social networks that you've had all your life. Because even though you've gotten a good windfall of cash, that, that new money only affords mm -hmm. property that's outside the city limits because so much other gentrification has happened in the city, which doesn't allow you to stay um, in that same place that you were, unless you are willing to settle for like buying a condo, which is less space, but probably the same amount of money that you paid for your house 10 or 15 years ago. So our community house that we purchased through some donations um, really is, is about giving us an opportunity to talk, work with, um, have a conversation with our neighbors, with other people in the neighborhood about that issue of gentrification, um, about policing, um, about wealth value, so that we can have conversations with folks and, and be very clear. So we're not here to tell you not to necessarily sell your house at a profit, but we are here to tell you that to stabilize a community and to stop it from gentrifying, certain things have to take place, right? So you have to think about alternatives to just um, market-based um, housing as a way in which people gain generational wealth. You have to think about land trust. You have to think about keeping your homes. You have to think about challenging people on the neighborhood association or challenging city councils around how development happens in your community. Because a lot of times this development happens and most of the folks who live, whether renters or owners, have very little say in what development actually happens in their neighborhoods and in their communities. Um, and so once somebody decides that they're going to put a big box store or something or a town, big town homes or some developer decides they're going to put 500, 600,000 homes in those communities, that automatically has this reverberation, which causes housing prices to go up again, rents to go up and taxes to go up. And now you're forced to deal with it. So we have to flip um, that power dynamic and have residents themselves have much more say and what comes into their neighborhoods, because everybody wants to benefit from a certain kind of development, but what people do not need or do not want is gentrification, which drives people from their homes and from their places where they live the majority of their lives. You know, I've been contemplating these circumstances that are so specific in this conversation, this dialogue with your organization, Community Movement Builders, and your Black Power Media. Um, and your focus is Atlanta uh, and the South Side. And I, I get it because I remember when I first arrived in Atlanta, driving through downtown, seeing the social death mural. And it was one of the first cities that I ever felt that was a, you know, quote unquote Mecca for specifically black people and people of color. It is unique in that regard. So I think there's something about that. However, we all know that there's housing problems all over the country. So apparently, you know, this um, private interest in real estate, which is kind of my wheelhouse, is pervasive. But you bring up some, some really crucial points. And Egberto obviously covers national and global. So this is very relevant. 
I, these days I've been thinking about the, the, especially with it recently being indigenous people's day, the term gentrification is really just the new gentrifiers in 2020 are just the old colonizers. This is really not a new concept. You know, it's what did colonizers do? Come in, take over, you know, usurp the resources and get rid of the indigenous people. You know, what do gentrifiers do? Come in, usurp the resources, take over via the civic engagement you're talking about and get rid of the indigenous people. The, go ahead. I, that is, I just love the way you articulate that. I had, I've been talking gentrification and I never quite put it that way. That is, that is gonna be a new concept that I have to use. But Robbie, if you'd let me, uh, I wanna address something that, that uh, Mr. Uh, Franklin said. And specifically, when he talked about people coming into the neighborhood, I read recently that there are corporations that are coming into neighborhoods and buying a whole swat of homes, uh, modifying them and then selling them out. And that seems somehow like an encroachment on a sector that they shouldn't have rights on. Is that the way uh, it should be, uh, Mr. Franklin? And I know, uh, Robbie, you are also the real estate agent what would what would that you know would that entail preventing corporations from doing something like that well what's interesting is you know when we talk about the 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 large the housing crisis right and the great recession obviously one of the main drivers was of that was uh the securitization of loans right loans uh were brought up by these large corporations uh, they were made into securities, and then people's mortgages basically were used to pay off bonds and so forth, right? And, and when that, that game collapsed, the market um, and these corporations reinstitutionalized. So instead of, and they became some, um, some laws that stopped them from doing it as directly as they did it before. And so one of the ways in which they picked back up on that, uh, uh, companies like BlackRock and some, several others, was that they started buying houses, right? Which usually were rental houses. And then they started securitizing rents, right? So sometimes they wouldn't buy them, I mean, sell them. They would mm -hmm. hold them. And now rents became the way in which they, they would use for bonds and so forth. And so that's part of what's happening now too, is that these large corporations, multi-billion dollar corporations are now buying up properties on courthouse steps at prices that regular folks can no longer afford, you know, mm -hmm. and, and even though there's this issue around housing being a commodity, we all know that one of the old time ways that working class folks would supplement their income uh, when they were in a position to might be to buy a second home and rent that out, right? And so that kind of working class ethic of like, I'm building my wealth, I got one a second home that I'm renting out to somebody um, down the block or someplace else and is supplementing my income to providing, providing somebody with a good home, even that form of sort of a, a ethic is now leaving this that market, and it's strictly around who has the most money to buy the most property at once, so that they can do bigger things with it. And so it's the the further commodification of housing and mm -hmm. property. Um, and housing, obviously, in the United States has never been thought about as a human right or something that we deserve just because we're born. Mm -hmm. It's something that strictly becomes this this uh, commodification of like we have to. Uh, sell it at the higher price, uh, buy it at whatever at the highest price, we fix it up to sell it again to move again. Um, and I think that type of sort of ethic, you know, capitalist ethic 
pervades the housing market. Um, and it partly, again, is getting us back to this sort of rush in, in, in uptick again in housing prices and rents that again is fueling the gentrification, the subtle colonialism, the, the ethnic cleansing, right? That all of that, which is basically now, you know, what we sometimes wrap up in simpler terms of saying gent that gentrification. So Kamal's an attorney, so I'm gonna I'm gonna basic that down <laughs> for the regular people. <laughs> you know, he because when he speaks, and so you do this like Bertha too, you bring in like five different topics and it's very complicated with very big words. So let me let, let's break this down a bit. It, I, I have to do this a lot in real estate. Uh, you touched on a lot. Um, the reason I brought up the gentrifier coloner parallel is because people, the face of it, I see people commenting sometimes. We had a groundbreaking ceremony the other day here. I sent it to you, Egberto. And our mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, um, who's a Biden pick and favorite, uh, a Democratic darling, I guess, uh, said it's all about planning. And so when Kamal brings up you know, the, the targeting of communities, the truth is, is that that is facilitated through our planning. And, you know, we, Kamau and myself have been witness to these real estate for-profit tours run by City Hall. And at the same time, these for-profit tours of, that brought in, you know, all these companies and developers and so on, there were no protections on the legacy residents. In fact, they weren't even warned. And so to, it's very strange, you know, and odd to see this someone like Keisha Lance Bottoms stating some, a, a comment like it's all about planning, yet they've planned so poorly. And our commissioner, you know, Tim Keene, is still gainfully employed, even though he was responsible for that. So when Kamal, when you when you bring up BlackRock, right, which is a huge company on Wall, on Wall Street, a hedge fund that buys up real estate, and it's important too to note that they usually buy the low hanging fruit, which is the single family home entry, right? So that's why when you're seeing all these articles about people not being able to get into the market, first time homeowners, that is why. But please don't be confused in the same way about gentrifier or colonizer and, and the, the face of it, because the truth is, is that Redfin, Zillow, Compass, you know, and I know I'm in real estate, all of these companies are allowed to operate in dual capacity and buy direct from the public. And in my opinion, it's an ethics issue. And Kamal, we, we've discussed this before. In fact, Kamal's organization, just to ensure that locals, legacy residents were included in the uh, planning process, which is in Atlanta, it's called the NPU, the Neighborhood Planning Unit. He wrote a petition so that basically at the basic level, there's a neighborhood association. And that is who's officially recognized uh, by City Hall as the voice of that community. But we have a lot of our neighborhood associations in Atlanta allowed to charge monetary dues. And in essence, it's a way to keep poor people out of the planning process. And Atlanta hasn't changed that. So we have this mayoral election coming up. Everyone's talking about housing, right? And who foots the brunt of affordable housing when we allow companies like BlackRock, Redfin, Zillow, you know, private investors to dictate how the market's going to work? The taxpayers. And that's why these taxes are going up. And that's why City Hall's allowing it. But no one in the mayoral race who are running, Andre Dickens, Felicia Moore, who's the broker, uh, Kasim Reed, is discussing regulating the real estate industry. Not one. I jump in, jump in real quick. And you know, I just want to say one thing about why they're not. It's not poor planning. 
it's there it is the plan right so these things that happen are not they're not accidents they're not oh we forgot they're not this is just some unfortunate consequence of policy these are the this is the actual policy that is dictated by uh these city officials hand in hand with these uh corporate developments so these are not accidents this is something that's planned as this is what development means for them you know in addition when we talk about Atlanta as supposedly a black Mecca, um, so what we're really saying is that under the black leadership, which has been here for 40 to 50 years, um, Atlanta has gone from over 60% black to now in the latest census track, dipping below 50% black. And that's because these black elected officials have again worked hand in hand with these corporate elites to decide what Atlanta will look like and who Atlanta is for. So Atlanta is slowly turning into San Francisco and Seattle, which means working class people, black or white or otherwise, um, are being priced out uh, of living in Atlanta, that poor people are being priced out of living in Atlanta, that legacy residents are being priced out of living in Atlanta. So there's a whole group of people, cross section of groups and people who can no longer afford to live in Atlanta because only a middle-class sort of managerial class of folks who work for these larger corporations are now, or this city is now being built around helping them move into Atlanta directly so they can get to their jobs easier and making other people pushed out who they feel can no longer afford what the new Atlanta looks like. I want to, before Robbie comes in, just a quick thing here, because Robbie said it right when she, she said that um, the mayor talked about planning. And I think you reiterated that, uh, Mr. Franklin, when you say that uh, it was planned. And I want to just give a sort of a national scope to this. Everybody wonders why a group of people in this country always is, uh, they're always left behind. Many times it is because of the face of the same, the leaders of the face of those same people that betray them. And when we realize that, then I think we can uh, make the necessary changes. So. But, but to your point, Egberto, and to Kamal's point too, that is part of the plan mm, because right. people are disarmed yes. when you feel as though, you know, there's something called wholesaling. And I want to make sure that we stay focused on Kamal's group, even though the work is integral, obviously, to what he's doing for this particular show or interview. But there's something called wholesaling, right? And this isn't being addressed at all. These are non-licensed people going around. And unfortunately, they are in bed to some degree with, with agents, with realtors. You know, I'm one firm, so it doesn't really matter if I don't do it. But what you see often with the wholesalers is that wholesalers tend to be of the demographic of the target community. So, for example, if it's on the south side, it's going to, in Atlanta, in, for, in, in Miami, it might, they might be Latin. In Atlanta, they're going to be Black. And what that is done purposely. I have seen Caucasian brokers place wholesalers in between as middlemen to attain that property. It's a straw buyer. It's an assignment contract because the people are less on alert when they see someone who looks like them being approaching them to purchase right. their home. Right. So it's, yeah. and, and this is no different, you know, with um, politics. So you, you see like the president now of the Atlanta Beltline, which is really a sidewalk, um, you know, that we funded through taxes and APS. It, Clyde Higgs is, a, is an African-American man who is the president. Well, he's new. 
you know, and you see this over and over and over and people get so confused about what's happening to them, but it's really not their fault because when you look at media, which is why I'm so grateful about the show, we're being fed a narrative. If you watch that Southside Trail opening Beltline video, it sounds great. It sounds absolutely great, but when you get into the reality of what is occurring in communities like Pittsburgh, you see the need on why the organization, community movement builders, and the need for independent Black power media to tell their own narrative and story, to say we have to be included in planning. And the truth is it comes at a cost. Kamal, you brought up two things I definitely want to make sure we discuss. One, you said the, the targeting and the planning. How is agency, specifically like code enforcement, can you give an example, because I think you have one, used against legacy residents and or organizations to target and dismantle kind of a movement kind of pushing back? Sure, I mean, in two ways. One, when you talk about a movement, uh, in particular our organization, part of the work that we do around the issue of gentrification is really being in people's space, right? And so we have a community house and we have a beautiful mural painted on the side of that community house, which is basically saying, protect the black community, stop gentrification from happening. Um, and recently code enforcement was called on us to write us a citation, a criminal citation um, saying that our mural uh, obviously was against the law. Um, and so, you know, we, put a public pressure campaign because this is our house and under the criminal code, we commissioned the mural. So it's our mural. There is no violation of the law. There's no HOA housing association. There's no, no fees. This is a regular, a regular home that we purchased that we own and we have a right to decorate that home as we see fit. And so the city had to back down uh, from the issuance of that citation but only after public pressure was put on them, and this became something that we put on social media that folks got to see and check out. Um, in addition to the last point that you made about sort of the identity pers uh, um, uh, similarities between those pushing something, there's also a political identity, which is often the same um, of the folks who are, are, are at the forward end of gentrification, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, the gentrification is happening in these so-called liberal cities, right? These liberal cities, which are supposed to have the interest, again, who on their platform put forth that they are siding with, they are supporting, again, working class folks, folks of color, poor folks. But as these, it is these liberal cities across the country, you know, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, right? So it's across the country that gentrification is taking hold. So at the same time, you have folks talking about stopping climate change and, re and representing different large national issues, these folks are again, allowing, working with, supporting um, these large um, um, corporations and these local big corporations to push housing prices outside the barriers, housing and rental prices outside the barriers of what working class and poor people can afford. And then they just shrug their shoulders like it's outside of their control where you are the political apparatus, right? right. You can do, and usually in these cities, the largest landowner is the city itself. Right. So the city itself can develop affordable housing. It can develop land trust. It can think of alternative ways to put the brakes on gentrification, but it chooses not to because it's decided that the resources that they get as individuals and the love of shiny new objects uh, is far more important than keeping a city affordable, working class, 
and attainable for people as opposed to bringing in these shiny new objects vis-a-vis um, -vis the Beltline, these new townhomes, these um, condos, these expensive homes, these large corporate developments, which are told to us to be progress, even if progress means that it's pushing poor and working class people outside the city. <laughs> it's progress. You got to go. It's progress. You got to yeah. go. <laughs> well, you know, again, you bring up a lot, but I want to tie things in and we, we're going to we have about three more questions and, and I think they're going to tie everything together and hit home. I really want people to understand and reach the, the conclusion themselves that the lack of inclusive development, which organization community movement builders is in the streets, you know, in a very different way fighting for and creating awareness around and sometimes with the murals you got to kind of wake people up like shake shake them a little bit like hey you know it, it sometimes that's the only way instead of having this kind of mild like can, can you see our point of view can you ask because i i trust me i tried that for three years can you can you can you try to understand you know i'll eat the piece of pound cake i'll attend the meetings you want but can you try to understand how these people would feel but that didn't work so it's it's very important not only the the matter in which you're kind of handling this right from a per place of strength but the other component is that your organization you as an attorney actually can defend so when that happened with code enforcement you were able to explain a legal argument and have the city back up because i remember in pittsburgh before years back there was a mural commissioned um and it was put up it looked like a giant serpent on a wall and the community of pittsburgh which is predominantly african-american predominantly lower working class very christian oriented to a degree had a fit about that mural up on their wall and all the gentrifiers came out and said it's art it's art and i point that out because of the hypocrisy the hypocrisy and these same gentrifiers have black matter signs in front of their home so you but their same gentrifiers have paid those monetary dues and allow for people to be excluded out of the city engagement the other component the last thing i want to ask you about before we wrap up is you mentioned um besides the code enforcement being targeted and folks being displaced specifically lower income black people out of Atlanta, the quote unquote Mecca, and them losing social networks. When, when our youth have to leave and see their, their family's property out on the street, you know, in evictions and have to leave homes that they're, uh, that they've rented for generations because they didn't have the ability to buy due to redlining and they have to start in different schools or they're out selling water. How do you see that as a correlation in crime? because crime is a huge topic right now in the city, including this um, cop city, this big, you know, massive development that they're putting money into police departments for. Can you talk just a bit about that? So as we know, gentrification has several drivers and part of those drivers are the actual use of the police against, uh, you know, what we may call the indigenous population, right? the use of military force, the use of criminality or criminalizing people so that you can arrest, harass, relocate people outside of their neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, again, being from Brooklyn, New York, I was a, as a practicing attorney, I worked on a, a federal lawsuit, a, a class action lawsuit around what was called stop and frisk and how black youth in particular were targeted by the police for stop and frisk um, in numbers far outstretching any potential criminality or so-called breaking of crime, which means that they were targeted because of their race. 
that's a system that in some ways is nationalized, right? Uh, communities of color are over-policed. Uh, they're over-ticketed, they're overstocked, they're over-arrested, obviously over-convicted and given longer sentences. And this is how partly how gentrification works to start targeting these communities, having these people move out, protecting the white gentrifiers. And you spoke about the gentrification, the gentrifiers themselves. And that's part of the dichotomy is that the gentrifiers who, you know, they think of themselves as lovely people and some of them may be lovely people, but when they come, they're not coming to share a community. The instincts are that they're coming to take over a community and to displace a community. And so again, another quick short story in Harlem, uh, there was a famous, uh, um, in Harlem, there's a park called Morningside Park, euphemistically referred to as Marcus Garvey Park, where every Sunday you would have African drummers for literally a decade who would perform in a park. And, and that was sort of a spiritual practice for folks in Harlem to either gather or hear the drums. As gentrification proceeded, new tower works were, were built, um, condos, the white neighbors, the new white neighbors, started to complain to the police about the drumming so that they can have the drumming stopped, right? So their input into the community was that the quote unquote indigenous culture, the lifestyle, all of that had to go to make things what we consider to be safer. And, and lastly, I'll say, you know, no one says that poor neighborhoods are some paradise. Poor neighborhoods need resources, right? But people still have social networks that they depend upon, that they live through. Um, but the, the, the issue is, who should have the power to make the change and development that these neighborhoods need? Should it be the people downtown? Should it be the real estate developers? Should it be the big corporate hierarchy? Or should it be the people themselves who are in need of the resources, in need of new development that fits their needs as a community, as opposed to having development that pushes them out? Mal, I want to thank you. Uh, Egberto, I want to thank you because uh, I'm hoping that this uh, interview and discussion with you and dialogue will awaken some people. I hope it will spark uh, some folks, especially our gentrifiers, who have the influence to ask themselves, you know, should I be supporting holistic development? Should I be more aware? Should we have walk-in community centers in every three mile radius um, in these divested communities for legacy residents because they do, they have been uh, damaged, you know, and, and need assistance beyond what I've received in my life. We can level things out and cost and and, in, and not incur the costs, the capital costs and the human costs by supporting organizations that support people on the ground. And that would be your organization, community movement builders, Black Power Media, who support holistic development, who are the voice of the people. You're doing the work, but obviously we have to support you. So I, I beg people to go to your um, Twitter, your site, visit the house, um, disagree when people are harassing the organization at the level or do not participate in it. Say, no, I don't condone the harassment of anti-gentrification organizations who are doing quality work. So Egberto, thank you, thank you, thank you, bro. Thank you for making this happen. Thank you for doing the show, um, uh, Robbie. I think this is exceptional. And for uh, brother Kamal Franklin, I've been, uh, I've always been a fan. Thank you so kindly for what you are doing in your community. That is reflected all over. We have several events coming up, okay. including uh, on the 21st, we're going to have an event at Morehouse to talk about the issue of uh, gentrification here in Atlanta, Morehouse College, to talk about the issue of gentrification and over-policing and actually Morehouse's support 
uh, for some of the policing activities which are impacting not only their students, but the surrounding black community that they've uh, been a part of. What is the best way uh, for people to uh, get to you and help you? Give us one specific link that's a catch-all. Best link is communitymovementbuilders.org, which is our website. People can find out about our work and people can also contact us directly to learn how to get involved or how to support us. And we have a donation page and all the rest of it. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank Kamal for making time for us and speaking so plainly and being so brave and bold. Um, I'm very grateful. It, it gives me hope for what's going to happen. I think the work that he's doing and the work that Egberto is doing is changing things. And I want to thank Egberto for making this happen. And especially I want to thank the Politics is Unright Posse for watching, tuning in. Please, please, please share and please go to the Community Movement Builders site and support their efforts. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.